I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. Glad you are with us. Thanks for uh, our radio listeners putting up with another rerun last week as as the Motes family was was recovering from a little seasonal illness. I am happy to be back in the office, happy to be back in studio. South Dakota is getting ramped up for our legislative session today, December 7th, as we're recording. This, this episode is going to air tonight. Governor Nome is delivering her budget address to a full chamber uh, joint session of our... Uh, House of Representatives and our Senate up there listening to the governor's speech here in, in just about an hour. So everybody is starting to think about the legislative session, and we're starting to think about it here, too, at the South Dakota Catholic Conference, a number of issues that we know are going to be important. And we're going to talk about one of those issues today. Uh, very pleased to welcome back to the program, Katie Faust. Katie is the founder and director of Them Before Us. I just finished this really great book, Katie, Them Before Us. It's sort of the, the title of your, your movement, title of the book. It's Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. And um, specifically, we're going to talk about um, one chapter in particular, surrogacy, but we're going to talk a little bit about the movement as a whole. Katie, welcome back to the show. So glad to be with you guys again. I had a lovely little time in South Dakota about two months ago. It was, and I'll tell you what, it's the stuff of my dreams. It was great. We were so glad you were here. Katie was here um, giving a couple of talks for Family Heritage Alliance for their stand banquets. And just, um, you know, I think it's a rare like banquet speaker that that just sort of like really inspires you, but also challenges you. And I think, Katie, you just, you really, you nailed it. So thank you for coming to South Dakota and and well, speaking to those left, audiences. You've left your mark on me. I've got, an, I now have a South Dakota like um, ornament on my Christmas tree because I'll tell you what, someday if we ever have to flee Seattle, I know where we're going. Hey, well, we will be very glad to, glad to have you. Let's, um, for, for listeners that maybe weren't at either one of those talks or aren't familiar, to haven't listened to the, to the past podcast you've been on, let's just get started with what is them before us? What is, you know, what does that mean and, and what is it? Yeah, it's a very simple approach to every single problem related to marriage and family. Uh, I think that conservatives and Christians, we tend to look at all these different issues, whether it's the definition of marriage or divorce or cohabitation or the freakish rise of, you know, resurgence of polygamy um, or even like abortion, adoption, IVF, sperm and egg donation, surrogacy, every single thing that you can think that intersects with marriage and family issues, um, it really is all the same thing, right? We tend to kind of play whack-a-mole when it comes to all these different topics in terms of, oh, a response for that. Oh, we have to think about this differently. But really at them before us, we recognize that all these different marriage and family issues are really about the same thing. And that is, are you respecting children's rights or are you disregarding children's rights? Specifically, uh, we talk about their right to life, but thank God there's hundreds of wonderful pro-life organizations fighting for children's rights to life. Yeah. But we're the only one that's solely devoted to defending children's rights on this side of the womb to their mother and father. Children have a right to their mother and father. And when you recognize that and respect it, you actually get a lot of clarity 
on all other issues of marriage and family, all the different things I just mentioned. It is like the template that you can lay over any trending news headline, any personal problem, and come up with the child honoring response, which also happens to be very good for society. So that's what Them Before Us is all about. Them, the children, before us, the adults, in all of these matters of marriage and family. Well, and I love that approach, too, of just putting children's rights front and center, because I think it's I, I don't know if this is just me, but I think that's like a bipartisan, there's consensus around that, right? That the children, we actually ought to prioritize them in our public policy above and beyond whatever ha- might be desired by adults that we should have children first, actually. Yeah, we should. We absolutely should. Um, we have, a, you know, in chapter one of the book that you were just referencing, the book that we came out with last February, which is sort of the manual for our global movement. We have a section in chapter one on why Republicans should get on board with the them before us mission, because Republicans will never get anything they want. They won't get small government. They won't get personal responsibility. They won't get low taxes unless they defend children's rights in the family. Democrats who are my dear friends on the left who are bleeding hearts for all the social justice issues, they're not going to get anything they want unless they can defend children's rights in the family because overwhelmingly homeless youth, um, high school dropouts, teens that struggle with suicide, teens that struggle with pregnancy, teens that are kids that are living in poverty, all of them have something in common. And that's disproportionately they're affected by father absence. And so there will be no social justice until we can secure individual justice for a child when it comes to their primary rights to their mother and father. So this should a bipartisan issue. Yeah. And I, I think we can work. We There's a lot of ground we can work on there. One of the things that I think is important to touch on from the outset too, is when we talk about children having a, a right to their mother and their father, you know, in America, we are very much like a rights society. We love a language of rights. So Katie, how do we know, how do we like reason our way through this? How do we know that, that this is actually a, a human right that children have? Absolutely. We spend some time talking about that in chapter one of our book as well. Um, If you don't want the book, if you just want the cheat sheet. I did a video recently uh, with the Colson Center's What Would You Say video platform um, called Children's Rights versus Adults' Rights, right? Or Children's Rights versus Parental Rights. Do children's rights override parental rights? Um, And we kind of talk through what is a fundamental right? Um, And we kind of give measurements for how do you know whether or not something is a fundamental right. And in our book and our movement is grounded in children's natural rights based on natural law, something that your Catholic audience probably has some familiarity with because Catholics have been doing natural law and emphasizing natural law in a way that has really benefited, I think, the rest of the world and and the rest of the Christian community. but my co-author and I, we kind of break it down for the layperson. Um, like three rules that make it a right test is kind of like the way that we look at things. Because these days, like you said, everybody will claim anything that they really want is a right. Yeah. You know, I have a right to housing, or I have a right to government-funded birth control, or I have a right to choose, or I have a right to marriage, or I have a right to parenthood. I mean, like anything they really want, they will frame it in rights language. Yes. But just because you want it, or even just because you feel like you need it, that doesn't make it a right. So we we lay out three different criteria that makes it a right. The first one is it needs to exist pre-government. The government didn't create it. It's there to protect it. So if you look at natural rights, obviously our right to life is a natural right. But also our connection with our parents existed way before government did. Um, So that's a natural right. Number two, 
nobody has to provide it for you. So if you have to dig a well and dredge it up from the ground, bottle it, ship it, package it, that's not a natural right. Um, And for a child's right to life and a child's right to their mother and father, you know, if you exist, so do your mom and dad. Nobody has to provide it for you. And finally, you know, it's a natural right if everybody has it in the same quantity. So it's not a natural right if there's a, you know, if you can have a dorm room versus Mar-a-Lago, right? If it can vary in size and quantity, then it's not a natural right. But if everybody automatically gets the same distribution, your right to life, you get one. Your right to your mother and father, you get one of each. You know it's a natural right. And so our movement is based on natural rights. And that is why we are actually very effective all across the world, because these are truths that are accessible to people, regardless of your religion, regardless of your culture, regardless of your language, right? These are human. So, so Katie, um, you know, you mentioned the natural law and, and Catholics using this language in the natural law. And I'm, I think it's just great that you use it too. So, but it, it raises this question, does somebody have to be a Christian to accept these propositions about children's rights. I mean, you know, I'm a Catholic. This show is called Faith and Politics. You're married to a Baptist pastor, and I know you're willing to talk about Jesus all day long with anybody who wants to to hear the good news. But when we're talking about these children's rights, do you have to be, uh, you know, a Bible-believing Christian to accept these rights? Yeah, good question. We've got a um, chapter in verse, uh, a section in verse chapter four of our book called, isn't this just about your religion? Because that's the objection that all of us get, right? Oh, well, you're just pushing your religion on me. Um, And I'm always like, great, tell me which scripture in my book you object to. Because there's none. I don't need the Bible. I don't need to appeal to special revelation. I don't need to appeal to scriptural authority to make these arguments. I can appeal to natural authority, natural law, social science, research, the testimonies of children themselves. And that's what we fill the book with. Um, And so, no, you don't have to be a Christian or a Muslim or a Mormon or whatever to believe in these principles. And yet we do have Christians, Mormons and Muslims who all make up our movement, because, like I said, this is not a Christian truth. This is a human truth. Right. Muslim children need the same thing that Mormon children need. They need their mother and father loving one another and loving them every day. Yeah, I think I think it's a really great point, because when we sit down, you know, in in front of the legislative committee and are talking about this, I don't bring out the catechism. I don't bring out the Bible. I'm just we sort of reason our way through things and trying to use language accessible to everybody. Let's um, maybe we could switch gears a little bit now and talk about uh, a hard issue. Um, and I say it's a hard issue because, I, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit too, but um, we know that infertility is is a real burden to bear for people that involves real pain and suffering. And I just want to acknowledge that right up front that, um, you know, in our state capital, when this issue comes up, like I've talked to, I've talked to the, uh, these couples, I've talked to these women particularly, like who just so long for a child. And I want to like honor that desire to, to give and receive love uh, with a child. But- if we're going to talk about children's rights front and center, um, we have to have just like an honest adult conversation too. So what should a children's rights advocate think about surrogacy? Yeah, really good. So we've discovered a connection between all these different issues, whether it's 
sperm and egg donation, whether it's the topic of no-fault divorce, whether it's same-sex parenting, or whether it's surrogacy, is all of them are going to involve somebody doing the hard thing, right? Somebody's going to have to sacrifice, right? If it's the couple in the struggling marriage, they either have to sacrifice and do the hard thing by working out their challenges, or it will force the children to do the hard thing by living in split homes. If somebody experiences same-sex attraction, they either will do the hard thing of forming their family around a child's right to their mother and father, or they will force the child to do the hard thing by losing their mother or father to fit into their family. On topics of infertility and where you're considering using a third party, whether that's the sperm or the egg of a third party or the womb of a third party, somebody is going to have to do the hard thing. Either it's going to be the adults who have to figure out how to resolve their struggles with infertility, their very legitimate longing for a child, right? Without violating a child's right to their mother and father, or they will force the child to do the hard thing by losing a relationship with their genetic mother, their genetic father, or with their birth mother, as in surrogacy. So we can recognize, and we should recognize, the very legitimate struggles that adults have in all of these areas But the way that our national and cultural narrative goes is the children won't struggle, right? The children will will be happy. If I'm happy, the children will be happy. That is wrong. Children deserve, need, long for, crave, and have a right to their mother and father. And when they lose it, we have diminished outcomes. They have broken hearts. And we understand that they long for their missing parent. So when you're talking about the topic of surrogacy, let's be very clear. What you're always talking about is a child losing a relationship with their birth mother at at minimum. In addition, they often lose a relationship with their genetic mother, right? They're they're either they've used a traditional surrogate where the surrogate is also the genetic mother or they've employed, employed the use of an egg donor. So they're cutting off the child's genetic mother. And many of these kids will go home to a home that by design is motherless, where it's a single man or two men. And so surrogacy is intentional mother loss. Yeah. And that's an injustice. Yeah, And just to, I mean, kind of highlight for our South Dakota listeners too, is this is not just a theoretical thing that's happening in other places. I've reviewed South Dakota surrogacy contracts in which a Florida man bought eggs from a Rhode Island woman and then hired a South Dakota woman to carry the child. Um, and this child, uh, born of a South Dakota woman, ended up going home to a, a Florida home that doesn't have a mother in it. Mm-hmm. So this little girl is being raised by this, this man. And the only two women that this little girl has ever known in her life, she has no relationship with and is not entitled to one under the law. Um, uh, at least according to this contract. So the, you know, the, and, and the genetic mother, the contract says that she's never going to get to know who this person is. Um, she'll, you know, she was gestated. She was carried in the womb of the South Dakota woman for, for nine months, but she very likely will never see her again. So this is, this is real for South Dakota. That's right. So that it's, this is a challenging topic for Christians, for pro-lifers, yeah. even for conservatives because we love babies. Mm. Come on, we love babies. We are making babies. We are adopting babies. I mean, that's what we do, yeah. right? 
So that is not what surrogacy is. Surrogacy is framed as this is about, you know, infertile couples having babies. No, unfortunately not. What surrogacy is in practice is on demand designer babies shipped worldwide. Yeah. That's what surrogacy is. That is what results when you intentionally separate and commercialize the connection between mother and baby. And the easiest way to think about it is surrogacy splices what should be one woman mother yep. into three optional women, genetic mother who produce, who supplies the egg birth mother who offers the womb and social mother who should be the daily presence in the child's life. Yep. Anytime these three mothers are not found in one woman, the child experiences loss. Yep. So I am the adoptive mother of my youngest child. Yep. He is a gift to our family. Um, he's Chinese. And, you know, I have a saying, I speak Chinese. And the very first thing I ever said to him, the, probably the only thing he can say in Chinese right now is, which is before God laid the foundations of the world, he designed for you and I to be together. Mm. Right. So I believe that adoption is God's plan B for yeah. kids. But that does not mean that he has not suffered loss, yeah. right? He had to lose something to be in our family, yeah. right? Whenever those three women are not the same woman, children are going to lose something that they are made for. In adoption, the adults raising the child are seeking to mend the wound. Yeah. In surrogacy, the adults raising the child inflicted the wound. Yeah. And so we cannot ignore that the wound exists and we should never incentivize, encourage, or commercialize the creation of that wound. So that is what this is, right? And I know that when you think about surrogacy, when you hear about surrogacy, usually it is that sympathetic picture of the infertile man and woman who yeah. are using their own sperm and egg to create a child. Yeah. Um, and that's a very sympathetic way to smuggle in what truthfully is intentional mother loss and very often resembles child trafficking. S say more about that, because I think you're, you're hitting here on what is a really, um, this is a difficult emotional struggle for policymakers who are maybe sitting on a committee and are hearing these stories and they're real, you know, they really tug on our hearts. So, but say more about that, there, that there's, even in this situation, that there's intentional mother loss. Right. So, Let's deconstruct the best case scenario first. Yeah. Okay. So the best case scenario is your sweet Christian mother and father next door, man and woman next door that desperately want to have a baby. Um, and they're going to use their own sperm and egg. Okay. So the first thing that you need to know is that all children who are created through surrogacy are made through IVF, right? This is the process of creating babies in laboratories, right? Where the scientists or the doctors or the technicians uh, fuse together sperm and egg in glass, in vitro, in glass. So statistically, only 7% of those children created in a laboratory will be born alive. Mm. Only 7%. So if you do have that baby on the legislative floor being held up by the mother who said, this is my miracle child. 93% yeah. of that child's siblings or counterparts who are also created in a lab didn't make it. Yeah. They're either still frozen. They were either thawed and discarded. They were deemed non-viable. They were determined to be the wrong sex. They did not make the transfer from 
petri dish to womb, or they were selectively reduced, that is aborted, because there was too many, they were the wrong sex, or they were the wrong, uh, they didn't look viable in the womb. So even in the best case scenario, this is not a child-friendly process. Yeah. This is a process that very often treats embryos as commodities um, to be stored, discarded, transferred according to the whims of doctors, intended parents. Um, so I'm grateful for the babies that live through it. The babies that do are precious, but they represent only 7% of children that are manufactured in this novel technology, these novel ways, okay? So let's say though, that the birth mother and the, the, the genetic mother and the genetic father have a child through surrogacy. And let's say that they only create the number of embryos that they want to implant immediately. So no, no child dies, right? right? And they do create the, uh, one child implants and a surrogate child for nine and a half months and gives birth. Well, guess what? The child may be genetically related to the intended parents, but according to the baby, those are just two strangers among 7.5 billion in the world. The baby doesn't know who that is. Babies and mothers bond in utero, especially the baby, right? The mother is the only thing that the baby knows. The baby doesn't know they're not genetically related. They just know that that is the sound, the smell, the voice, the body, the milk that they crave. And babies who lose their birth mother often suffer traumatic results, traumatic responses. There is a book called The Primal Wound. It's considered the adoptee's Bible, all about the deep pain and trauma that children experience when they lose their birth mother. Um, And these, they've got facts to back them up. It's harder for adoptees who are adopted at birth to trust, to bond, to attach, to form secure relationships. Even though adoptees are brought into homes where the adoptive parents tend to spend more time with them than the general population does with their kids. They're more educated and they're more wealthy. Adoptees still struggle disproportionately. So there seems to be something critical about that mother-child bond and a wound that takes place when it's severed. So in surrogacy, you are inflicting that wound, not because the mother is suffering hardship, not because there's an unplanned pregnancy, but because there is a planned commercialized pregnancy and you are insisting that the child sacrifice so the adults can have something that they want. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most, one of the most, one of the most difficult things I've read in a surrogacy contract is um, a provision. And it was starkly repeated three times that upon birth, the mother will not nurse the baby, will not nurse the baby, will not nurse the baby. Um, And I just, I don't know for for whatever reason, just because I I guess I've seen my own children come into this world and then immediately just like go go to mom's chest, you know, and and that sort of life giving nourishment, um, just to see that in the contract that that the woman who has just given birth to this child, it just it's really it's really impacted me. And so. why not, right? Why why is that so important? We don't put newborns on the chest of random strangers so they can form a bond. Yeah. We put newborns on their mother's chest because they have an existing bond. Yeah. And that bond is nurtured and reinforced through breastfeeding, right? The baby, that is probably one of the very few things that is going to come. I mean, I know that for my second daughter, when I gave birth to her, it was really traumatic. It was really fast. She was crying. I was out of it. 
And the only thing that calmed her was when they put her on my chest and she heard my voice. Because mm. she's like, finally, something that I know, something that's familiar. Children who lose that connection with their birth mother, they have no other choice but to interpret it as a form of death. Yeah. We actually have studied maternal separation and we see the cortisol levels rise in children. Um, it, in, it brings about a stress response in them. Um, they're not made to just be cut off and reattached to strangers. Um, and that is why some adoptees do have additional challenges. So one of the, um, one of the things that kind of jumps out at me in your book is using the phrase big fertility. Can you just say a little bit about, you know, what, what does that phrase mean? Why do you, why do you use the phrase big fertility and, and how is money bound up in this? Yeah. I first heard that phrase um, by Jennifer Lal, who did a documentary on this and actually profiled a South Dakota woman um, who was exploited through this very lucrative branch of the medical industry, which is reproductive technologies. And um, surrogacy is the cash cow. Like it costs a lot of money and people make a lot of money when you're talking about creating motherless babies. It's biology makes it really difficult to make motherless babies. It takes a lot of money to make it happen. Um, so I refer to big fertility because I didn't, you know, we're not, we're not the original, but sure. it's because this is, um, you know, always elective. Yep. Um, and so the people that are going for it definitely have the money to, they need to have the money to make it happen. There certainly are some challenges across the country to have insurance cover IVF services. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, it's out of pocket. And typically it is the rich who buy. And when it comes to eggs and sperm and especially womb, it is the poor who sell. So this is a marketplace. Um, in chapter nine of our book, we contrast adoption and reproductive technologies. Um, adoption is an institution yep. centered around the well-being of children. Reproductive technologies is a marketplace centered around the desires of adults. So money is intricately involved here. So one of, um, I think one of the other questions that's come up in the context of South Dakota policymaking, there was a bill last year that would have required any any clinic, any facility that is producing uh, children in the laboratory to report to the State Department of Health, um, you know, what happens to those embryos? Do, do they end up, you know, are they destroyed? Are they transferred to another state? What, what happens to them? Uh, we just have no idea right now. Uh, and that the bill was killed in, it made it through our house, was killed in Senate committee. Um, the uh, one, of, one of the opponents was a hospital system here that's involved in this. You know, do we have great data on, what do we know about some of the numbers that help us understand this right now? We know nearly nothing. Um, there is, this is the wild west of the medical world. Um, there is very little requirements when it comes to tracking. There certainly is no requirements to follow up on these kids and find out where they are, how they're faring. Um, they're very often taken across state lines and across international borders. Um, and so unlike adoption, where there's requirements in terms of post-placement studies and follow-ups and tracking, there's nothing like that yeah. in big fertility. Um, these children can and often do just disappear. And there's no way to even, so like people will say, well, what kind of studies are done um, on children created through big fertility? Um, and the answer is we don't know yeah. because a lot of them don't, a lot, we don't have any way to track them. Many of these kids are not told that 
They were created through sperm donation. These days, a lot of kids are finding out that the father who raised them isn't their father because they're taking 23andMe DNA tests. Katie, I want to interrupt you real quick. I got to end it for our radio listeners. Thanks for tuning in on the radio. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, I want you to go over to your favorite podcast app and and download the podcast. You can catch the rest of our conversation. We're going to talk a little bit more about some policy recommendations. Until next time, live well. And for our podcast listeners, thanks for sticking around. We're going to keep visiting with Katie a few more minutes because we're, we're talking about some important things. And um, so, Katie, forgive me for cutting you off. Please finish your thought. And I've got a couple more questions here. Yeah. So what do we know about how these kids are doing? The truth is we know very little because we're not required to track them or study them. And then it's very hard to study a population that do not know that they belong in that study, yeah. which is a lot of what's happening when it comes to children created through third party reproduction. So what do you mean? They don't know that they belong in that study. They don't know that they are conceived through sperm donation. They may not have known that they were conceived or that they were gestated in a surrogate. Children who are raised by two moms or two dads are much more likely to understand their origins. Children who are raised by heterosexual couples oftentimes don't know. It was actually recommended in the 70s and 80s not to tell kids that they had been created through a sperm donor, thinking it would be less traumatic and they would never find out. Well, technology has caught up with them. And now the idea that you can be have an anonymous donor is crazy because now DNA tests are leading children to find not only their biological parent, but often the dozens of half siblings that they have across the world or maybe across the street. So a kid, I mean, they don't necessarily know anything about their biological origin. So they could end up, I mean, they could end up marrying a half sibling. That's one of the most um, pressing concerns for children created through sperm and egg donation yeah. is that they will accidentally date, marry, have a romantic relationship with one of their half siblings or, you know, one of their hundreds of first cousins. Right. Right. Especially because a lot of them, even if they know they are donor conceived, they might be dating somebody who doesn't know that they're donor conceived. So this is not awesome news for either the children or the human gene pool. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about, but I suppose if there's a, you know, you live in a big metropolitan area and there is maybe a sperm donor that was used many dozens of times. Um, yeah, kind of, kind of crazy to think about. One of the other things that's really so striking in your book, and you've kind of alluded to this throughout our conversation, Katie, is um, kids of these sorts of arrangements, they've, they're growing up and they've got things to say. What are some of the things that they're saying as they maybe find anonymous forums or places where they, where they feel comfortable and free? Because I, I can, I, I know they feel some pressure too to like, oh, I don't want to make, you know, mom or dad feel bad. But when they do feel free to speak, what are, what are they saying? Yeah, well, especially when it comes to the donor-conceived community, um, they're really finding their voice sometimes in anonymous forms, but now sometimes advocating, you know, together. Uh, But the main struggles that these kids, especially third-party children created through third-party reproduction is identity struggles. So a lot of knowing who we are has to do with knowing from whom we came. And we're cutting off access to that aspect of their biological identity by cutting off their biological parents. And so many of these kids struggle with what um, adoption specialists have called genealogical bewilderment, where they just don't know who they are, right? Even some of them will say, I really struggle to look at myself in the mirror. Hmm. Another big struggle is commodification. 
these kids are very concerned and troubled over the fact that money changed hands, that they were conceived through a commercial transaction. Many of them are also concerned about the eugenics aspect mm. of the third-party reproduction process. Yep. You know, they feel like a designer product that was bought and sold because they were bought and sold. The whole sperm and egg donor is a misnomer. Nobody's donating anything. Everybody's buying and everybody's selling. Yeah. Um, many of them also struggle with household instability. These tend to be more unstable households that the kids are coming into. Yeah. And a lot of them grieve deeply over the fact that they have a few or maybe hundreds of half siblings that they will never know. Mm. And if they're on some of these like um, donor registries or, um, you know, 23andMe, oftentimes over the course of a year, they'll find two or three more half siblings that they didn't know existed. Mm. So we profile a lot of their stories in the book. We donate, we designate all of chapter seven to just talk about sperm and egg donation and all of those different struggles. And you'll hear about 30 of their stories about how this has really impacted them for life. So South Dakota, as we come up on our legislative session, we are expecting that there's gonna be a bill to affirmatively legalize surrogacy. Right now our state law is arguably it's silent on the matter. Um, there are, there's at least one court who has refused to honor surrogacy contracts. And it said that, look, if you wanna terminate the relationship between a child and a parent voluntarily, we have a process for that. It's called our adoption code. You're bound to use it according to binding Supreme Court precedent. But other courts are, are playing a little bit fast and loose with, with their legal obligations and are, and are granting these uh, contracts, even though there's this, this void in the law. So surrogacy advocates want to affirmatively legalize it with a kind of a regulatory uh, structure. What, what advice would you give to policymakers, Katie, who are confronted with, hey, let's legalize this? You know, what, what would you say to that? You must look at this from the child's perspective. If you're going to look at this from the perspective of adults who really want a baby or lobbyists who are saying this is an LGBT right in terms of, you know, access to parenthood. Um, even if you're looking at this from the perspective of women who serve as surrogates, many of them will say, I love this, right? I just feel like I'm giving the gift of life. So if you're looking at it from the adult's perspective, maybe it makes sense. If you're looking at it from the child's perspective, it never makes sense. You must tackle these issues. I believe all marriage and family issues, but certainly when it comes to reproductive technologies from the perspective of the child. And that is that the child will always suffer loss. You always are asking the child to sacrifice, even in the best case scenario we talked about, which is yeah. minimal, right? You, I have only heard of one situation in all of the work that I've done where it is a mother and father using their own gametes where they only created the number of embryos they were going to immediately implant and there was no money involved at all, right? right. And even then the baby had to lose their birth mother. Right. But most of the time you are creating multiple surplus embryos that will never be born alive. Oftentimes there's a third party involved so the child will be losing a connection with their genetic mother. Yep. And I'll tell you what, they're never gonna bring the cases before the court where you've got men that are mass producing children motherless children, right? We've got that case of a Japanese millionaire who wanted to have a hundred motherless babies and he made it to about 30. 
Um, We've got situations of men who create babies specifically for the purpose of exploitation to be used as pornographic objects and sexual objects for trafficking rings. Uh, We profile them in our book. They will never make it. Those stories are never going to make it to the floor of your legislature. But that is what you are opening the door to, unless you look at this from the perspective of the child. And so you've got to major on the most vulnerable, especially if you are a pro-life politician. This is the other side of the pro-life argument, right? Our anti-abortion work is grounded on this idea that just because a child is unwanted, you should not be able to violate their right to life and force them out of existence. It's true on the other side. If a child is very wanted, you should not be able to violate their right to life, any child's right to life, or violate their right to their mother and father and force them into existence. Children have rights. Children have a right to life. Children have a right to their mother and father. The onus is on adults to conform to those rights rather than expecting children to sacrifice so adults can have what they want. So my recommendation for policymakers and just for average citizens is we have to think about this from the perspective of protecting the most vulnerable, and that's kids. Katie Faust, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. And thank you, dear listeners, as always, for tuning in. You know, if this was a maybe a hard conversation for for you, or if it would maybe be a hard conversation for somebody you know who's just struggling with infertility and thinking thinking this through and bearing the just the pain and the burden of infertility, just know that there are there there are people out there that wanna that wanna walk with you. You can reach out to Catholic Family Services based out of Sioux Falls, Catholic Social Services based out of Rapid City. They've got qualified counselors that are that are trained and prepared to, to just help people that are struggling with, with grief of this sort. And as always, you can reach out to the South Dakota Catholic Conference. If you want to know where to turn, you can go to our website, sdcatholicconference.org, and click Contact Us. Thanks for tuning in for this episode. Until next time, live well. Live well.